Well, we're not going to the book of Nehemiah this morning. That's something different. I haven't said that in a while, Brother Zach. We're going to go to the book of Genesis. We'll start with chapter 1. So we'll start at the beginning. How about that? We'll just work our way through the book. Not the book of Genesis, just the whole book, brother. No, just kidding. <laughs> it's good to be with you all this morning. Anybody chilly in here this morning? Okay, well, I was just going to say, if you were, don't worry. My wife was a little chilly, but she said it would warm up once I started running my mouth. So we'll be all right, amen? <laughs> and she said, don't you dare use that. <laughs> I said, I'm using it. Starting off in trouble, Brother Bradley, from the beginning, amen? It's the making up part that I like, amen? That's, that's the good part of it. All right, well, it's good to see y'all. Let's, uh, let's have one more word of prayer, and then we're going to get into this lesson this morning. Father, again, thank you for the privilege and honor of just being here, Lord, and being able to open up your word, and, and Lord, to learn something more about you and how wonderful you are, God. I pray you'd reveal yourself to us today, and that we would believe it and receive it by faith. In Jesus' name, I do pray. Amen. All right, the book of Genesis. So the we had mentioned uh, last week, if you, I gave you all some homework, by the way. How many people did their homework? How many people even remember I gave you homework, right? And we'll have to, oh, Brother Kate, thank God. I, I knew there had to be somebody here that was, uh, Lacey reminded you, I'm sure, right? <laughs> oh, sister, thank you. We got a couple people who did their homework. So, <clears throat> Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about some of the names of God so that we might know our God a little a little better, more intimately as he reveals himself to us. And uh, so Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, we'll get two of the names of, of God that are revealed to us. And just remember uh, a couple of things. Number one, why does this matter? Well, you know, the Jehovah's Witness tell me at prison that, uh, they only, that God only has one name. He only has one name. It's Jehovah. And I said, well, what about all the other names that the Bible gives him? Oh, those are his positions or there's something else. But, but there's only one God, and we agree with that, by the way. But he reveals himself in different ways and do different things to us about him through his names. And so that's why the Bible gives him multiple names. God is too complex. He's too complete for us to understand all of Him, period. And, and only we can only understand that which He reveals to us. Amen. And the Bible is this process of God revealing Himself and us, Brother Brad, okay, and also about His wonderful plan for the redemption of the world. That's what the Bible is unfolding for us and unveiling our God. And of course, the book of Genesis, being the beginning, has much to say in this regard. It has much that it opens up for us. And I I love the way God appears on the scene, which we'll get to in a minute. But hold your place there at the very beginning in Genesis, which shouldn't be too hard to find. And let's go over to Psalm 91. We're going to come right back, but I just want to look at this, a couple of verses here in Psalm 91. Psalm 91, the the first couple of verses here, I want to show you something. See if you can catch the names of God that are mentioned in these two verses. Look at what it says, Psalm 91, verse 1. 
He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him will I trust. So let me ask you, how many names of God did we see in those two verses? Raise your hand if you got one of them. Okay, let me let me have one, Brother Mike. What? Almighty! El Shaddai. Yes, okay, what else? Sister? Refuge. Okay, that describes God, who, what He is. Okay, but there's, some, there's three other names mentioned here. Brother Brad? Most High. Yes. Lord. That's Jehovah. And then what's the last one? God. Elohim, which is the one we're going to start with today. So you see in those two verses, we see all four of these primary names of God here mentioned. All right, and go to Genesis 1, and let's look at verse 1. And look how God burst on the scene here, ladies and gentlemen. It says, in the beginning, God. God didn't explain Himself. He didn't give us any history or background here. He just pronounced himself on the scene. Amen? He needs no introduction. All right? And so he says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This name here for God is Elohim. I'm sure you've probably heard that before in the Greek uh, language, which I don't speak Greek. I'm no Greek scholar. I'm not even a scholar of English. I'm mean, I'm still trying to get this down. I'm serious. So this is not going to be an intellectual um, uh, study here. I don't want it to be intellectual. I want it to be practical and simple as possible. Because I think in simplicity, truth becomes profound. We have to understand it and know why and how. Why, it, why it's important to us and how do we apply it to our lives. And And that's the goal here. So... So Hebrew, in the Hebrew word, this word Elohim is a what's known as a uniplural, a uniplural, meaning that there's already a hint in the name of God here of the Trinity. Amen? And so certainly I can't explain the Trinity. Certainly I can't, and no man can. And that's why a lot of people stumble on it, and then they try to get intellectual on it, and they try to then explain away the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity, because they can't understand it. But Brother John, I don't think we want a God that we can actually understand, do we? I mean, it wouldn't be a very big God if I could comprehend uh, comprehend all of this stuff about God, all that He is. Now, certainly I can, I can learn what He reveals to me. And so, speaking of scholar, and, and uh, you know, years ago there was a guy named D.L. Moody. Anybody heard of D.L. Moody? Probably most of us heard of D.L. Moody. He's been saved more than about ten minutes. And so D.L. Moody, you know, he was, he was a shoe salesman when he got saved. Y'all may remember that. A guy named Ed Kimball, if I'm not mistaken, led him to the Lord, his Sunday school teacher. And uh, God unleashed on the world an evangelist named D.L. Moody. And he went to England. He went to a, a famous pastor over there named F.B. Myers. He went to his church. And uh, when Moody got there, F.B. thought he'd made a mistake when he invited Moody because Moody butchered the king's English so bad that he thought the people in his church were going to be offended. And so he decided he would do a little probing, right, a little fishing expedition. He went and got one of his, he he was having a time to talk to one of his lady Sunday school teachers. And so he asked her, he goes, how are things going since Moody got here? And she said, marvelously well. 
She said, I've led every one of my girls to the Lord since Moody got here in my Sunday school class. And I guess that was the end of that. So even God can use us even if we're not eloquent. Amen. And you know what? Even if you are, he could use you too. But, um, but just as long as this, keep in mind this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, I, he didn't preach with the wisdom of words. Amen. And so when we start, you know, this, this whole Calvinism movement in America is, is based on intellectualism. On men that think they have the, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man figured out. And because of that, now they get really dogmatic about those things and, and cross a line that, that no man can cross because no man can understand that. And even Paul said, hey, I don't preach that. And the reason that a man doesn't preach from wisdom of, of his words is because in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that no flesh shall glory in God's presence. That's why God uses the simple things. So that no man, no flesh would glory in his presence. Okay, y'all with me? So this, now with that said, let's look at verse 26. We talked about Elohim being a, uh, a, a uni plural, and we see it again here in verse 26. And, and it says, uh, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And we see that God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image. Well, who's he talking of when he says us? Absolutely, he's talking of the Trinity here, and he's revealing, again, God, remember Genesis, he's revealing himself. He announces his presence on the scene in verse 1. He gives a hint already of the type of, of person that God is, and he says, there, we're going to learn later, there's a Godhead. There's three persons of God, one God, amen? And so he says, let us, because who else, who else has creative powers besides God? No one. You heard about the scientists. You know, they clone things these days, right? And the scientists were having a meeting, and they just, they decided that, you know, based on what we know now and all the technology and ability and knowledge that we have, that we can create man as well as God, you know, as it says God did. And so God had a conversation with them and challenged them and said, you think you can do this? Yeah, we can do it. He says, okay, well, said, go ahead on. I'll challenge you. You can't do it. And he, they said, well, we'll do it. And so they gathered up some dirt. And God said, go get your own dirt. Amen? So it's like, okay, the Lord, not only is He, is he revealing Himself uh, in, in His plurality, in the Trinity, in the uniplurality of Himself, but He's also revealing Himself here as Creator. So we see that He created man. We see, go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what does that tell us right there? What three things did God create in that verse? Time, space, and matter. Everything that exists. In the beginning, that's time. Before that, there was no time. God created time. God exists outside of time. He created time for us. Amen? Then He created the heavens. That's space. And then He created the earth. That's matter. And then everything else He made from that. You know, interesting enough, you know, there's three words that are used in our King James Bible to describe God's creative act. Number one, we just said he created, right? What's the other two? Anybody familiar with that? 
He said, let us make or made. Those words are, are there. Let us make man in our image. Okay. And then what else? Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 2, 7. And God formed man from the dust of the earth. Amen. And those are all a little bit different, by the way, in how, what he did with that. But, and we won't get into that today, but we are seeing in this word Elohim, God is creator. So let's break the word down just a little bit. The breakdown of the word El means strength. And the second half of that word, the H in there, they tell me, okay, and I'm, I'm depending on other scholars, but I have studied this. And it's, it means that it, it, it means to swear or to bind uh, uh, to an oath. It means basically faithfulness. And so we see in here, we see the God of the, the strong one who is always faithful. He keeps his covenants. Amen? Now, the strong one, is there anything that God can't do? That's a trick question. Is there anything God can't do? Yeah. He can't lie. That's specific. He can't sin in any way, but it's specifically in the book of Hebrews, it said the God that cannot lie. Amen? So we know that God can't lie, okay? There's some things that God can't do, but He only can't do them because of who He is. Because it would violate His, his person, his, his character. And so, therefore, yeah, God has all strength. And so, El uh, means strength, the strong one. So we see Him as creator. Uh, we see that He is also faithful. Now, let's look at some examples of God's faithfulness here. What about, turn over to Genesis 6. And there's a man introduced to us in Genesis 6. Anybody know who he is? It's Noah. Yes, okay. So Noah's introduced to us here. And I want to show you something about Noah and and his relationship with God and what God said. Look at verse 13 in Genesis 6. It said, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through, through, uh, violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God has the power here to create, and He also has the power to destroy. And we see that here, and He tells him that I'm going to do this. But look down in verse 17 and 18. I want to show you something here. And it says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee I will establish my covenant. What is a covenant? It's an agreement. It's a contract. Okay? So he says, I'm going to enter into a contract with you. He announces himself and introduces himself here as Elohim, the always faithful one, the one that cannot change, the one that always keeps his word. And he says, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. And then he's not only told him he was going to establish a covenant, but he gave him also, along with that promise, he gave him what? A sign. And what would be the sign? He said, I'll never flood the earth again, and here's my sign of that. What was it? A rainbow, right? Okay. So if God, Elohim, the always faithful one, the one that cannot break his covenant, said he's not going to flood the earth again, is global warming going to cause the ice caps to melt and flood the earth? No. Do you even have to entertain that kind of foolishness? No. We, because we have biblical authority. 
God said, no, Sister Mary, it ain't going to happen. So the, no matter how many degrees and letters behind the na- name of the man that tells you that, he's a fool. Because God has established what will happen and what will not happen. And so when, true science, by the way, I believe will support what God said. Uh, but today, but we don't need true science. We have God's Word. So whether science catches up with God's Word or not doesn't matter. But it's, most of the time, when they do get true science, of course, it's going to agree with God's Word. And so God, I'm, I'm showing you here that God is, uh, is Elohim. He is a covenant maker. And so he will never break his covenant. So there's Noah. What about another example? Turn to the very end of the book of Genesis. In Genesis 50... Genesis 50, and look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Wow, and so then Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. So why did Joseph say, hey, load up my bones when you leave here? What does that tell you about what he believed about God? God's a promise keeper. God said, I'll bring you out of there. And Joseph said, hey, I'm about to die. I ain't going to get to walk out of here with you guys, but you get my bones loaded up when you leave and you take me with you. Amen? Because God's going to do it. Because he said, God, Elohim, is a promise keeper. He's always faithful. He's the strong one. Those two things about that are important. Number one, he's always faithful. He can never lie. He always does what he says he'll do. But the second thing about it, that L part, remember, Brother Johnny, means he's strong. So what that means is not only is he willing to do what he says, but he's also able to do what he says. He has all power. He has all strength. There's nothing that can restrain him from doing what God said he will do. Is that not encouraging to you? Think about the dads in here, all right? Dads in here, wouldn't you do anything to protect your children? Right? But you know what? You and I, number one, we lack power. We don't always have the power to protect them. And sometimes we don't even have the wisdom to know how to protect them. Amen? But God likes none of that. So we can see... God revealing himself here to us. And then there's another example of Korah over in Psalm 46. Uh, Be still and know that I am God. Uh, Elohim, again, he always keeps his promises. So what about us? Has he given us any New Testament promises? What about Hebrews 13.5? What does it say in that verse? Well, probably the most famous promise of the New Testament you guys will know. What did God promise? He would never... Never leave us nor forsake us. That's comforting. Meaning he doesn't have, no one has the power to separate him from us. And he has said he will always be there. Number two, the second thing about that, not only has he said that he will always be with us, but what about Romans 8.28? Romans 8.28. Yeah, not only will he be with us, but he'll also work together for good all things for those that are called according to His purpose and those that love Him. Amen? Now go to Hebrews chapter 6 and we'll finish up our thoughts here uh, on this word Elohim, this name of God. 
Hebrews chapter 6 has much to say here about how God feels about these covenants. Hebrews chapter 6, we'll see here starting in verse, let's start with verse 13. It says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Because look what he says. Saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. This was the promise he gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Well, he got Isaac. That was another promise that he had given him, right? He had to wait till he was a hundred. It says, for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So the men swear, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. You know, you heard kids say that in elementary school or whatever. Or they swear on something, the Bible. I swear on the Bible. You're swearing on something greater than yourself. That it be true, that it be consistent, that it doesn't change, okay? Well, look what it says about God. It says in verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, he might have a strong consolation. We might, yes, who have, excuse me, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast which entereth into that within the veil. Now, let me just go back up to that verse 18. These two immutable things. By two immutable things, God did this. What do you think those two immutable things were? Say again? An oath and a promise. Absolutely. God's Word. I'll say that number one was His Word. God said, my Word does not change. I don't change that. Okay? Two immutable things. Now, He's already said He swear by Himself up earlier because there was no greater for him to swear by and he gave us two immutable meaning unchanging things number one is his word i think the number two is his will that's what he wants and what he wants his sovereign will he will do amen and his word brother Cade, he says these two immutable things i swear by them And um, this is the God that we're talking about. But look at what the result of it is for us, God. This is why it matters that we understand God in this way. It says that we might have strong consolation. Now, again, I told you I wasn't a scholar. I had to look this up. but, But what Webster said about that consolation is that it is comfort, strong comfort. And it says not only that, but it says refreshment of mind and spirit. You ever needed to have your mind refreshed? Your spirit refreshed? Well, when you go back and think of God as, his pro- as a promise keeper, always faithful, always doing what He says, and having the strength to perform it, that helps you refresh your mind. Gives a strong consolation. And that not that only, but look at the rest of that, and it says, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. And it says in verse 19 that that hope is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. So not only do we have strong consolation, we have hope and it is set before us. It is an anchor. And what do we think of an anchor? What does it do? It holds fast. It's sure and steadfast according to the next verse. 
I remember in uh, November 17th, 2001, in the early a.m. hours, you know, you ever been in, you know, that song that Brother Doug used to sing, I love that song, you know, it says, the stormy blast would go against the, the, the ship, and he said, but my anchor holds. I'll read you more of that in a second, but November 17th, those early morning hours of 2001, we got a blast into our soul. Rhonda was pregnant with the twins. We were celebrating our anniversary. We were up in Jefferson, Texas. And then, guess what happens? She gets up to go to the restroom early in the morning, and then she starts leaking amniotic fluid. She's not six months pregnant yet. That's not the ideal time, right? And so the reason I mention that is because I remember, man, it was a shock. It was tough. It was hard. Because, you know, we're healthy people, and and so we had done things the best way we knew how. And then we got this situation. And so what were we hanging on to? You remember? So we drive back from Jefferson, and probably at least 15 or 20 times we're listening to a song entitled, My Anchor Holds. We're just just hanging on to that. that. That song that Brother Doug sings, it says this. It says that, it says it. It says I I stand. It says still I stand the tempest shock. For my anchor grips the rock. See if you got your anchor hung on a rock, <laughs> brother Roger, you ever lost an anchor? I have too. You get that sucker in the rock so hard you can't get it loose, and you just have to leave it there. That's what this songwriter was talking about, and that's what we were hanging on to that day. You know, and you got to get that grip. You got to grip that rock. And that rock is, is the one that doesn't change. He's the one that lacks no strength. And he's the one that's always, always faithful. And you know, the whole, um, the whole chapter one of Genesis, go back to Genesis chapter one. I actually turned to chapter two. But if you look and you review chapter 1, did y'all catch that, by the way, that did your homework? The only name for, for God in Genesis chapter 1 is God. It's Elohim. The whole chapter, that's the only name mentioned. When we get to chapter 2, we get introduced to God in a little bit different way. We get a new word. What's the new word we get in chapter 2? Those of y'all that read your homework, what is it? Lord. Jehovah. Amen. So it's all caps in your King James Bible. If you check this out, let's look at verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4, Genesis. It says, there, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So what happened? What changed here? From in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To now, in the beginning, the Lord God made the heaven, made the earth and the heavens. What changed? Besides, why was it not God anymore? Why was it the Lord God? Yes. So, Jehovah. Jehovah basically means the self-existing one. Then what did, how did, how did Moses, how did God, how did the Lord tell Moses to introduce him to Pharaoh? He said, if I go to Pharaoh, who should I tell sent him, sent me? Who should I tell him has sent me? I am, and I am. I'm the self-existing one. 
I'm the one that needs no introduction. I've always existed. I don't need any help to come in. I've never been created. I'm the great original. I am. People say, did Jesus Christ ever claim to be God? Did Jesus Christ ever claim to be God? Well, let me ask you, you ever read John chapter 8 when he was having a conversation with the Pharisees? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. What did the Pharisees do after that? They got angry? And what else? They tried to stone him. They tried to stone him. So, did they understand what Jesus Christ said? You bet you they understood it perfectly. They said, Jesus Christ said, I am God. I am the great I am. And they, man, they were, they flipped a lid. I mean, they were ready to stone him to death. And, 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 you know, if he had blasphemed God, if he was not really God, then rightfully so. But he was God. But they understood clearly that Jesus Christ had confessed that he is God. So, this is the first part of this. It is the great I am. Now, by the way, also, uh, what about in Luke chapter 14, verse 18 and 19? Did Jesus ever claim to be the Messiah? The promised one? You bet you he did. And what happened this day was in, the, in Nazareth, okay? He stands up and he takes out the scroll of Isaiah. And he's read, he reads a couple of verses, but he stops at a comma. Instead of finishing the last verse, it talks about the day of the Lord, which hasn't happened yet, Brother John. And then he sets down. And everybody's just like, whoa. He just got up and... And then he said, in this day is this prophecy fulfilled. You know what they tried to do to him after that? They knew exactly what he said. He was claiming to be the, pro- the Messiah. They tried to throw him off a cliff. And he supernaturally went through the midst of them. So, yes, Jesus Christ claimed to be God, the great I Am, Jehovah, the Lord. He also claimed to be the promised one, the Messiah, the the Savior of the world. It's clear, anybody that really reads the Bible honestly, other people will try to, cults will try to deny that, but it's true. So let me give you uh, three things here about, about the Lord as Jehovah. Number one, He is the great I am. Now, the other thing about that, by the way, the second part of that, that Hava part of that word, means also that he is self-revealing. He is the self-existent one who makes himself known. No man, again, could understand him without God revealing himself. So, why does that matter? Well, number one, God's revelation uh, of him as Jehovah, this is his relational name. So that's why it didn't exist in chapter 1, as he was creating all these inanimate things. And then all of a sudden, at the end of chapter 1, he created man. And now, in verse 7, remember we quoted it earlier, it says that the Lord formed, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life. And what? Man became a living soul. That had never been said about any other of God's creation. None of his creatures did it say that. But he formed him of the dirt and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So what he said about making God in his own image made him a spirit being just like he is. And that's the difference here. But that, but that, that now because there is a spirit in us, now 
there is a relationship that is established. So you understand the first thing about Jehovah, when you see that, and by the way, it's used 6,000 times in the Bible, 2,500 times for Elohim, you see God as a relational God. He has a relationship with His creation and with His man that He created in His image, His mankind. Y'all with me? Y'all following me? Okay, so not only is, is He the great uh, I Am, is He the self-existing one, and does He make Himself known, but this is His relational name. Okay, so He told in, in 128, not only did He create man in His image, but He gave him dominion over the earth, told him to be fruitful. He told him uh, that he was to multiply. I worry about Christian couples that don't want to have kids. We're supposed to multiply. What does that mean? How do do you multiply? One kid? Two kids? Have you multiplied anything with two children? You're replaced only. You haven't. You, you're going to die, and so is your wife. And you, so now you've just replaced yourself. You haven't multiplied anything until you get past two. And by the way, sometimes kids don't live to be adults. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes kids don't uh, don't go on. Now, I'm not talking about parents that can't have kids, and unfortunately that happens a lot. But I'm talking about parents that just don't want kids, or they only want one, or they only want two. You know, it's like my daughter growing up in high school. She didn't want any kids. Then she said, okay, I'll, I'll adopt one. And then she said, okay, I'll have one, and maybe I'll adopt one later. And if y'all have noticed, she's got like five of them running around here uh, this morning, all lined up here on the pew. You know what I'm saying? But God changes something about that. And He makes us want to be fruitful, makes us want to multiply. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of cultures, a lot of societies are dying because of this. Uh, when when I when uh, Brother Castellaw and Brother Stefan were here from Germany, they said that the birth rate over there is way less than two. I, I don't even know, but it, I mean they're a dying society. You can't you can't sustain like that, and they will continue to decrease. The only guys I think that, that they're really increasing are the Muslims. So that puts us in trouble, I think. Cause, but anyway. Uh, so we got to multiply. We've been given this dominion because God made us. And so if God made us, then he's not only our creator, he's also our sovereign ruler. So guess what's going to happen in chapter 2 when we get over to verse 15. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. And it says, and the Lord God, and by the way, let me explain this. The Lord, that's Jehovah, the capital L-O-R-D. That's the name we're talking about. That God is still Elohim. So you have the Lord God, compound name. He says he took man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Now, God is our creator, and now in a relationship, he wants to be seen as provider. He provided everything that they needed. Right? He gave them all the food. He'll go into detail about that. He gave them a great place to live. He gave them a relationship with himself, which is incredibly uh, unbelievable. But it says in verse 16 of, so you, that, that you can eat anything. But verse 17, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And I will make him a helpmeet. So he even gave a man a helpmeet. Thank God he provided everything that we need. But there was one thing that we couldn't participate in. And because he is Elohim, creator, and because he is a relational God, the self-existing one, Jehovah, he gets to make the rules. 
Brother Dick, he's in charge. He has the right to set the boundaries and the guidelines. And he says, you guys got everything provided for you here, but this over here you can't touch. Now, as human nature, what do we always want to do? Have that which we can't, right? So why come I can't have it? That's the first thing I want to know is why. Kids ever ask you that? You know what the answer to that is when they're young? None of your business. Because I said so. That's about it, okay? You give them that look and they know, I don't want to ask no more, okay? It's like, you know, what are you doing? Asking me questions. Question my authority. You got a five-year-old kid that's asking why? No, that, that ain't going to fly. You know, it's like, don't even, and, and God's saying, this is the rules. Because I'm, I'm the Lord God, therefore, this is the way it's going to be. So, hey, that's not only God revealing Himself here in His relational matter. And by the way, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for this. Look, Elohim in His relationship, is God love or is God love? Does not the Bible say twice in the New Testament, Brother, Brother Roger, that God is love? God is love. Okay? So, if He's loving, then why does He keep it from them? To protect them. That's exactly right. Because He does love them. Wouldn't you? Don't you do things? Like I told my grandson, Waylon, the other day. I was backing up my truck to hook up our camper. And I could see in my backup camera where he was. But Tim uh, was back there. And he was rushing over there to get Waylon out of the way. Because he was kind of starting to come toward him. And he wasn't listening to him. So, when I got out, he wanted to come to Tim. But Tim was saying no. Well, guess what? When I got out, I had to have a little talk with a five-year-old Waylon. And I said, son, when somebody, when an adult tells you no, it's no. You don't come over here. You understand? You've got to learn to listen. Your kids must learn to listen to the word of authority when they're young. You want them to obey God when they get older? They better learn to obey your voice. And when do you want them to obey that? On the second and third warning? After you've done the count of one, two, and a half? Or when you say so? When you say so. Fast and shiny. That's the way the kids are to obey. Fast and shiny. You do it fast with a good attitude. Smile on your face. Even if inside you're like, I don't want to do that. You just keep the smile on anyway. So... God sets the rules here because He loves us. He's protecting us. He said don't do this because He loves us. Now, the second thing about it is this name is God's redemptive name. So, you know what happens at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. The fall happens. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3, Genesis. So, throughout chapter 2 and throughout chapter 3, God reveals Himself as the Lord God with only one exception. And when God speaks, He always says the Lord God in these two chapters. But there's a conversation that goes on between Eve and the devil where it only says God. It only says God said. Half God said. They left out the Jehovah part, Brother Roger. Left out the relationship part and and just left in uh, God's a covenant keeper. Oh, He can't break His covenant. Surely you're not going to die because God can't break His covenant. See, don't be tricked and fooled by the devil and by the world and try to make twist of what God means by what He says. 
And so, that's the only time it doesn't say the Lord God. But if you look down here in verse 9, look what it says. It says, And the Lord God called unto Adam. So after the fall, who called unto who? Did Adam call unto God? Or did God call unto Adam? The Lord God, the relation God, the redemptive God, called upon Adam. Because He's not only the great original, He's the great initiator. Jesus put it like this in the New Testament. He said in John chapter 6, No man cometh unto the Father unless He draw them. So who made the first move in your salvation? God always. Amen? Any man that ever got saved, he didn't come to God until God was already drawing him unto Himself. Right? He was already working in your life. He was already revealing things. You ever look back and at times in your life, markers, spiritual markers where God did this, and you go, oh... I see how God, that, that made me think differently. Or how, oh, that made me question things. Or whatever it was. That God was working in our lives to bring us into Himself. And eventually He puts us under the sound of the Gospel. Isn't that right? So that we can know how to know Him. Because He not only is the initiator of redemption, but He's the provider of redemption. Look over in verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. By the way, chapter 20, and by the way, it's, I'm still, if I'm right, 20 comes before 21. Is that right? Okay, in math. The math that, I'm not sure about that new math stuff. But look what it says in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. What is Adam doing right here? By calling her Eve, what is he doing? By naming her Eve, saying she's the mother of all living. What is he exercising here? Faith. What's he exercising faith in? Because God said in the day that thou eatest of, thou shalt surely die. But then over in chapter in verse three in chapter three verse fifteen, he said, "I'm going to send a seed of woman that's going to bruise the devil's head." Because of that promise, Adam said, "I'm going to name Eve the mother of all living." And what that means is, I believe what God said that the the human race will continue on because God promised it. And so, because of that, he exercises faith. So, faith comes first, then look at verse 21. Look at this right here. Now, God's doing all this. Remember, unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Those coats of skin, where did they come from? Came from an animal. Came from a, probably a lamb or a sheep, right? Okay. Did he skin it alive? I don't think so. So where's the first death in the Bible? It's right there in Genesis chapter 3. And who killed him? God did. God provided a lamb, a sheep, a goat to clothe them, to cover their sin until the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, would appear in the New Testament. Amen. And so we see God here making the the move toward redemption. We see Him as Jehovah, as a relational God. We see Him as the redemptive God. And we'll finish this next week and then maybe get into His next name uh, about the rest of the things about Jehovah because we got some wild Indians outside the door trying to break in on us. We better get ready. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us, Lord. And I pray you will continue to work in our lives and our hearts today. And uh, in the preaching hour, Lord, may we be uh, ready to hear God and ready to act. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.